Welcome to Weird Games and Weirder People, a podcast about role-playing games and the weird, wonderful people behind them. Hello, weirdos! This is Diogo Nogueira, and welcome to the podcast where we get to talk to the weird, wonderful people behind the tabletop role-playing game space. And I would like to remind the weirdos out there that we do have a Discord server you can join and talk weird with us, share about art, creativity, any weird, wonderful thing you like. And if you'd like to support the show, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast. You can leave us a review. And if you have any coins left from your last adventure, you can go to our Ko-Fi page and pay us a coffee. Uh, head on to the uh, show notes and check out the links. Uh, it's ko-fi.com slash WTWP. And without further ado, let's introduce our guest of the week. It's Sean F. Smith. He's a game designer, editor, mind reader, and magician. We talked about how illusionism, magic, and mind reading affect his work in the RPG space. We talked about uh, animism as a form of spirituality that he follows, he feels it in his spirit. We talked about how ghosts are almost a universal myth in the imagination of pretty much everyone, I guess. We talked about how comedy, magic and games relate a little bit. We talked about British comedy. We talked about music, how he listens to the radio. We, talk, we did a deep dive on what's weird, the origins of the world. We talked about folklore, myths, a little bit of theater because that's something important to him and he talks a little bit about Macbeth. Uh, we talked about how our art is collaborative, inspirations. We talked about books, artists and everything that inspires his work and to do the things that he do the way he does. Uh, we talked about his latest game called Quarrel and Fable and how he is updating and making improvements to release it in print. We talked about nightmares, how he helps reflect and have ideas sometimes. Uh, he gave some really great tips on how to make NPCs, so listen up. And it was a great show, we had a great chat. It got personal, it got deep. Sean has a lot of, lot of wisdom to pass on, so listen up and let's get weird with Sean F. Smith. Hello, weirdos. We have here with me Sean Smith. Hello, Sean. How are you doing, my friend? Hola, Jovo. I'm I'm well, thank you. It's uh, it's it's been a, a windy day, and there's been lots of rain, which uh, which as an Englishman is is my standard habitat. So I'm so I'm fairly happy with that. Yeah, you mentioned that. I remember seeing like a YouTube video of a you know a British comedian, and he sees the sun in the sky and is like, what, what is that? Yes. What is this yellow ball in the sky? And it's all panicking. Like he doesn't understand what the hell is that. And yeah, here it's uh, pretty much all the way backwards. It's always sunny. It's always warm. Now it's kind of rainy, which is kind of relief mm -hmm. because we're in the summer and it's uh, sometimes oppressive how, how warm it is. Like you take a cold shower and you're sweating while you're mm. taking a cold shower it's yeah, incredible no, I, I know that feeling <laughs> although for me that tends to happen when we're at about 25 degrees celsius um so uh so i'm, I'm not sure that i'd cope yeah. particularly well in brazil but i might i might manage in yeah. the winter you never know yeah well we got some days here of you know the thermometers in you know in the parks and in in, in Plazas were going up to 48 Celsius, 50 Celsius. It was, yeah, 
and and we are not even like in the peak summer not even in january or february so i'm i'm afraid for what is to come but yeah, yeah exactly. we, we will see about that uh but sean uh for those weirdos who don't know who you are uh could you introduce yourself tell a bit to be tell a little bit about who sean is what is that you do and if you can share a small uh word detail or you know something that you do uh curiosity for 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 us out here yeah definitely so as by now you've uh, no doubt learned my name is sean smith uh i'm a a mind reader a writer um frankly if you if you pay and pay me money for it i will probably do it um i uh you you may know me from writing such things as quarrel and fable uh editing such things as orc borg um or in general trying to uh trying to make things weirder and more nostalgic and slightly more horrid in a variety of different ways. Um, and I was thinking yesterday what my what my optimal weird fact would be. Um, and I've decided to go for one that I'm adjacent to rather than is about me. And uh, as a child, I used to live in, well, in Suffolk, uh, so a place on the, on the eastern coast of England, specifically very close to Rendlesham Forest, which is the site of... Britain's best UFO story, functionally. Um, it happened before I was born, um, but there were uh, there were strange lights that were that were recorded above the forest several times that evening from several different places. And the thing that makes it really strange and stand out as quite a peculiar story in general is that the best reports and recordings of this come from the US military base that was based there at the time. So typically the group that you would expect to be the cause of whatever was flying through the sky uh, is the people who are standing there saying, this is what's happening. Um, and as of, I think it was probably about 10 years ago now, the uh, maybe even a little bit more than that, um, Freedom of Information Act meant that we were allowed to, beyond a certain point of time, certain information suddenly becomes shared with the public. And so you can now listen to the recordings made by the American, I don't know if it was soldiers or if it was Marines or whatever, who were settled there, um, recording their experiences, seeing this very strange light in the sky. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's my, my fun, weird fact. Wow. That's, that's pretty impressive. I, I think I, I saw something about this. Uh, there is a mini series in Netflix called Encounters, I think. Mm. And they have, you know, each each episode is one of the most famous encounters that were witnessed by like lots of people. So there is like a small city in the United States with like 300 witnesses. Uh, and there is some place in, in, the, in England, but I, I don't remember where. That's probably that's the place. I wouldn't be you know. surprised if it was. There's... Um... Yeah. it's it's it sits in the uh, there's there's a lot of very strange things that happen in Suffolk um, with uh, like a load of old stories about uh, the black shuck who was believed to be the devil himself who turned up in like the 1400s uh, there's still a church in Blytheborough which has got a massive stain on the door uh, which was said where it was like this demon dog that was trying to beat the doors down so so it's definitely a weird part of the world um, there's I think there's a reason why We've uh, we've not put any of our motorways through that through that county, but uh, I don't know for certain. Yeah, and how do you feel about uh, being there and being part of this place? And how is your relationship with the, with the supernatural? There, do you believe in these stories, in UFOs, in aliens? Or I know this is usually questions I do 
in the end, but since we are already here, so <laughs> I thought why I'd not? How how start with yeah. the uh, start with the, the big power ones? Yeah, There's, that's the other reason why I brought that one up early. It was like knowing that quite often you'll ask, "Oh, do you believe in these things?" Late on, I mean, now I want to start yeah. with this. Um, essentially, the the big answer is I don't know, but that's from the perspective of I don't think it can entirely be knowable. Um, for quite some time, I've I've performed as a magician as a mind reader. Um, I almost uh, I tend to describe the sort of stage act that I do as if Darren Brown was a little bit more into books and ever so slightly taller. And uh, as part of the process of thinking about like my act and the way in which I present this, there was a certain part where, and I think it was almost a counterpoint to when Richard Dawkins got particularly annoying on social media when he started talking like a like an end game boss in a video game. <laughs> that I started realizing that one, there's there's a lot of like mind readers, particularly who will perform as as like hyper atheists and and strong skeptics, and I realized there was a certain aspect of that that was just a bit disingenuous for if I was doing it, and especially because I was mostly doing things about like the logic of stories and the power of stories. That in order to assume everything is. Like everything that I don't immediately know to be true must be wrong, um, is quite a quite a strange perspective to take. Especially if I'm like, I believe you're all wrong, but also I want to take your money so you can come and look at me pretend to do these things in front of you. So <laughs> I don't know for certain. Um, I think the the fact that there's well. What I what I usually say is that I I I'm an atheist, but I, I I'm more like an agnostic. So I I don't believe mm. this. I think this is false. But it, if it's presented to me in a way that uh, it seems believable, it, there is evidence that it can be you know repeatable. It can be experienced in this way by multiple people, and it's always like this. Mm. Then yeah, I will yeah I, I will believe in this. Yeah, and there's definitely there's a lot of. Um like structure set up this uh there's a magician called james randy who famously has a, a million dollar prize for anyone who can demonstrably pro prove their miracle in whatever sense um and uh he's, he's quite influential both in in vibes and in uh actual structures of how to make things as well um that said there's there's a few th so i don't have any formal religion as such um there are a few things that i do that I suppose are like religious aligned in the sense that um, almost have a kind of, I believe that like the term is animism in the sense of like, almost like moving through the world as if all things have some form of spirit in them somehow. Um, and, uh, and that's mostly, I think just as a way of kind of like grounding myself in the moment and just making sure that I'm actually paying attention to like the things around me um but then also there's like on the flip side of things like i do i'm both fascinated by ghost stories and actually the thing that always sta makes me stand out and think there may be a specific thing to it is that so many of the old stories we have at a point before we get a sufficiently like connected globe we've got all of these stories that that detect the exact same sorts of phenomenon in terms of um, like the kinds of things being seen, drops in temperature, um, the almost like the feeling of dread 
all of these aspects that appear consistently throughout the world and the fact that they're always, almost always attributed to ghosts is interesting. Um, obviously, there are some scientific like uh, explanations for certain things. Um, one that I quite like is about, I can't remember the exact frequency, I think it's like 83 hertz or something. Um, so it's something that's not quite audible for most humans. Uh, dogs and cats can hear it. So if dogs and cats start acting weird, then that explains why it's going on. Um, but it also happens to be the resonant frequency of our eyeballs. So because the sound in the air is making our eyes shake a tiny little bit, our brain's like, oh, there must be something there. And so it implies what's there. And that's potentially why certain ghosts appear in certain rooms, for instance. Um, wow. It's basically, it all boils down to maths. Everything is maths at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, there is always that thing. Uh, it's kind of psychological, right? Mm. Uh, when you watch uh, a scary movie and you're, you know, and then you go to the kitchen alone. Uh, it's late <laughs> at night, and you have this sensation there is something behind you. But it's just uh, that's something you're like talking about. You're not religious, but you believe in some things. And I, I've I've been caught in myself in, in kind of believing. But not necessarily believing, but being, you know, conscious about uh, how the universe conspires in some ways, mm. uh, and you and you take opportunities of those. If you are paying attention, you can take opportunities, and, and you know, uh, good stuff happens to you. But I think it's more like what I'm actually saying. Like it's how how you are paying attention to the world, to the universe, how you are being present mm. and being connected to what you are looking for, and then you you will see what you are looking for. But if you're if you're not connected, you're not paying attention, or you always have, we have negative thoughts. But you're always thinking about this. You're constantly. I have anxiety, so I have to always monitor myself to to get out of those thoughts. Mm -hmm. And if I let go, that's what I will see in the world. That's why I will pay attention. That's what I will always connect to. So I think it's. We kind of create those things for our, our reality. Like even though the universe doesn't, it's it's ridiculous to think the universe conspires in my favor. Yes. Who the fuck I am, right? It's 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 uh, it's absurd. But at the same time, it's it's something that happens because that's something that I'm connected to. I'm, I'm feeling, and it's it's real for my reality because that's what I'm 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 paying attention. Things are happening. Mm. I know it's it's completely absurd. But it's, I think it's how, how we see the universe is how the universe it is for us in some ways, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's kind I of think... a mind hack in a way. But it's, I think it's the same way with spirituality. Maybe it's not real, but if it's useful to you, it helps you go through the world and, and be a better person, more positive and, 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 and function better. Like, why not? Mm. It's, it's I think... how I'm, I'm, I'm trying to approach it. Yeah, because I think especially with spirituality and religions, there's two major things that functionally seem to be universally human in that like our oldest paleontological records show we appear to be doing certain things all of our for as long as there have been humans. And I think some of that is community in that if you are interested in a particular way like system of beliefs, then it's quite a good way of connecting with other people who share those same beliefs and it's it's the sort of thing that um <laughs> would get me would get me cancelled or start a war uh, to talk about how actually it's, it's great it's like hobbies hobbies are religions um 
but the way in which humans act like connect to them, I think certainly behaves that way. And I think the second thing about them as well is that they are, they're really good as vectors for like self-discipline and solid beliefs. And there's a really effective way in which people can learn and remember and become good people through the teachings that they can learn in different ways, whether that's spirituality and the like. So I think that's probably why humans have been doing them forever. Um, But also on the the flip side, it doesn't matter if, doesn't matter if it's true, if it works. Um, So like I, I have, I don't don't know exactly how many, I've got dozens of tarot decks in in my house, Um, partially because performing as a mind reading magician, it's, it's a really good prop. It allows me to do card tricks, but they don't look like playing cards. So it's, it's like, Oh, here's all of the things that I spent years and years learning when I was, uh, when I was a tiny child. Um, and now I don't need to do, um, because it makes it look like I'm just doing some magic tricks, but I'll also use them for, well, most often for like story generation or for reflection on the like, um, and it isn't because I believe they're great that, oracles. Yeah. Oh, they're incredible for that. They're great and it oracles. isn't that I believe yeah, yeah. it's the universe is directly saying here is what is going on, but more that it gives a specific perspective to to consider it's like your to help own you problems think. and the like. Yeah. Mm. So like one of the yeah. like the most common where you've got three cards laid out in a row, um, it looks just like a, a three panel cartoon. And the same way that people well, we've got cartoons in newspapers the world over every day for the same reason where we're used to just looking at things and like considering system like systemically uh, and uh, and yeah but on the same side i don't think that i can go in and saying oh no just because i use it for this um everybody who believes in the heart of the cards can is is wrong um but uh yeah someone, someone and, might and what we're yeah and what we're saying about how humans have been doing this uh, for a long time, I've, I've watched a doc- documentary called uh, Unknown, Cave of Bones. Mm. It's on Netflix too. It's about, you know, a cave that was uh, discovered in Africa that have bones of, you know, hominid uh, human, uh, you know, prehistoric uh, humanoids like humans, but, you know, before Neanderthals, before, you know, a lot of our ancestors. Mm. Uh, they're like 200, uh, 250,000 years old. So, uh, and they found, first they found that the bones, there were a large quantity of bones and uh, almost entire skeletons, which mm. was really, really rare uh, for any, any of her, you know, ancestors, hominid species. And then they were like, keep digging more. And then they found a tunnel and then they found out they were, you know, burying their, their people. Oh, wow. And they buried, you know, they buried kids and they, they buried even more. And they found, you know, art, like the art other you know, uh, humans made, yeah, like cross hatches and, and things like this. Mm. So, you know, this is even before humans, as we know, humans are. Yeah. So it's, it's there's, fantastic. And, and, I was saying there's ahead. almost like two, there's two or three parts that make like, I think half the other reason why we've, um, we've, we've survived so long as, as a species is by, following basic health and safety in that if you put the things that rot solidly away from you, such as under the ground, you won't die. Um, but then also there's the, there's just the sheer veteran, like veneration of these, these, these people were important and we will still treat them with dignity upon death. Um, which I think yeah. is a really quite a, 
it's a useful like transitionary period especially for like a community to be able to grieve as well yeah yeah and and you and the journey to to bury them it was like tunnels it was complex it wasn't mm. uh, something simple to just you know bury so it was uh a ceremony a ritual for their the those people there so i thought it's quite fascinating you mentioned you know being a mind reader and and a magician uh is this like synonymous or there are like diff these are different things what do you so mean when you're they're saying kind like of, you're mind they're reader? overlapping in the fact that the uh the formal term within within like stage magic is for um is for like the mind reading style of things is often called mentalism um although i didn't particularly like using that as a term um one in the fact that i think chris angel um who's an oh gosh i can't remember if he was american or canadian that'll wind them both up um but uh, he's a, a ridiculous uh, like shock performer, kind of in the David Blaine era, but what if David Blaine was uh, was on Kerrang! instead? Um, fairly, fairly good as a, as a performer, actually. Um, but he, uh, he did quite a few different shows, and through the processes of that, there were like some of these old words that had been used in the 50s started cropping up and again. Um, but also there's a lot of... like. British comedy shows that would go about using the word mentalist to talk about someone who is just a bit mad. Um, and so it uh, it made it very difficult to market a show as it's like, come and see my show. I'm a right mad lad. So, uh, so I opted for mind reading because it was slightly closer. But mechanically, it's it's pretty much the same as a lot of other stage magic. It's a case of the performer says something is going to happen and lies basically and performs that thing in a different way um so it uh, it can kind of go both from some scales where it's almost like presented as if it was a real thing um just in a quite theatrical setting to uh, it could literally just be this is a stage show you're seeing these things and it's all mind themed um but the main reason why i quite like doing mentalist tricks um one is from a love of stationery uh, half of the effects involve writing things down, showing them, buying lots of different envelopes. Uh, the sheer amount of envelopes that I would buy as a mentalist was insane. Um, and then the second part of it also is it's considerably easy to travel between places um, carrying only the sorts of things that can fit in the briefcase, whereas a lot of classic stage magic would involve giant boxes and saws and like disappearing women. And, uh, and it's very difficult to take them on the train. Yeah, well, uh, you were talking about this, and I remember another show I watched uh, uh, a few few years ago called Magic for Humans mm. on Netflix, and it's very interesting. There is there is one of the tricks is like uh, they are in a park, and there's like like a, a small open theater, like there is a circle in the middle that's downstairs. There's like stairs that people sit around, and he explains that's gonna you know make a invisibility trick, but but before. He explains everybody that it's not going to make anyone disappear, but every, everybody that's going to act like the people that are on the chair disappeared, you know? <laughs> uh, so they make believe that this, this, the people, be, first he makes one person really disappear for that, that one other person that's there see the people disappearing. And then he makes that person, you know, he, he takes off the clothes and 
pretends uh, he disappeared and everybody like wow he disappeared <laughs> and that person's like wow and he started doing things like he started messing with people like going their hands in front of people and even picking like uh, people's foods and eating and stuff like this you know <laughs> oh that's brilliant there's quite a lot <laughs> that's of um, pretty, pretty like, funny. hypnosis yeah. tricks that work the same way where the audience is like conditioned into believing or seeing things in a certain way and because it's then yeah. almost like you're there's a there's a level of like you're following the instructions incredibly well so you will yeah you will remember it as the way in which you were experiencing it at the time so in a sense yeah. it's it's kind of is true just because it's you forced this sort of uh like communal experience where people are going to kind of expect well this is what's happening um and in, in the same way that we can feel like we can feel genuine emotions watching a puppet play. Um, there's uh, yeah. there's a comedian that I really like called Randy Feltface, who um, has a felt face because he's a he's a puppet. Um, and he's got just ping pong balls with painted on dots for eyes. Um, but within about two or three minutes, your body has just accepted, oh, I'm just watching a person talk. And so all of these like emotional stories you're telling where he's referring to things that happened to him. Um, all of which are made up as well, even if they might be based on realities of things, they're still producing a genuine emotional reaction in us. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think that almost like theatrical framing and the fact that you're kind of providing this environment for everyone to say, right, let's all, let's all agree to this. It's like yeah. genuinely wonderful. Yeah. I, I like the show very much. Like, it even have a magic for humans. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a Spanish version, and it's it's kind of funny. He had all, all other tricks that he would like write something, and it would be the thing that some would say in the end. <laughs> I, I think it's probably one of those things of mind tricks. Like he influences you to say what he has already written or something mm -hmm. like this, right? Yeah, yeah. It's do you mentioned like uh, British comedy shows and 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 Randy Feltface, a comedian. That mm. we enjoy. Do you have any other like favorite comedians or British comedy shows or, or any movies that uh, you've seen recently that you really like or anything like this? So yes, there's, I mean, in general, it's it's one of the things that I'm quite a fan of. Like broadly, like I'll, I, I tend to watch quite a lot of like stand-up shows at the moment. Um, there's a lad called uh, Stuart Goldsmith who has been he's been podcasting for I think over 10 years now as well he's got a show called the comedians comedian which is very similar to a setup as this mm -hmm. where it's two people talk um and it's yeah. it's they're talking because they're in the same field but they're not often talking about comedy as such so there's that's usually quite a good place where I'll look at and I'll spot things that kind of make me think oh I, I like how this person's talking I'm going to go and look at their material um yeah. One of my current favourites, um, I saw him, he was supporting Sam Morrill, um, who's, a, who's a New Yorker, I believe, who was on his first UK tour. Um, and uh, this comedian is um, is a, uh, a guy called Vittorio Angeloni. And by name, you would assume he's, uh, he's, he's deeply Italian. Um, but, uh, but no, he is Irish. And, uh, and so a lot of the, a lot of the humour in which well, much of the humour he's got is in terms of like how he'll focus in on um, specific, 
almost kind of like juxtapositions within what people will like think and accept and say a certain amount of it is in like crudeness um and yeah. like forcing people to look at something more closely than they'd, they'd probably want to um but he's uh he's he's quite a good lad he was he was on yesterday so we had um the the radio station that i listen to most often is bbc six music which largely plays a lot of like strange like stranger weirder things um quite a lot of soft rock independent music um and its afternoon host is craig charles who um is a poet um but also most people would probably recognize him if not from robot wars um from the fact that he was in red dwarf uh so obviously a, a big popular british wow. sitcom and uh so on on that show yesterday um vittorio angeloni called in and they had a conversation and a chat and I'd learned that he used to be a musician in fact he would he played the timpani so like massive huge drums um, and mostly moved into stand-up comedy because you don't need to bring enormous drums with you and uh, taxi drivers don't refuse <laughs> to let you in their car so uh, so I think there's certain certain parts of that um, yeah. so big fan of his stuff he does quite a lot of um, there's a lot of things that I see on YouTube uh, in like the YouTube shorts or on Instagram, which are snippets typically of crowd work that he does. Um, and he's, he's a very witty yeah. man. Um, and for the, for the keen eared amongst you, there is a, there is one bit of crowd work, which features me um, as the person he's talking to. So, uh, so I leave that as homework <laughs> for, um, for our weird listeners to spot, to see if they can work out where it is. Uh, and in fact, I'll, nice. I'll give it a reward if anybody can spot it and, uh, and get in contact with me. I'll give them a free game or something. But uh, I'll look for it. I I I, lo I love comedy, so yeah, he's, I'll, oh, he's, I'll look he's for absolutely it. brilliant. Really, really fantastic stuff. Um, there's uh, there's also someone I'm quite a fan of who has got a few work in progress shows that are coming up soon that I hope to see. Um, uh, she's called Lulu Popplewell, um, which is perhaps the most British name ever, and uh, she is. For fans of Love Actually, um, she was the second lobster, uh, the daughter of um, of Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson. Um, but also, apart from being a child actor, has done a load of like straight comedy stuff herself. She's really quite interesting in the way in which she'll sort of deliver material. Um, there's uh, there's a tendency for like I think a lot of British comedians to lean quite strong into like strange absurdisms which i am quite a fan of um and actually one thing that i quite like about lulu's work is that she'll like maintain a certain level of like reality throughout um and almost like the kind of like keeping the energy at like a really quite like a thin precise place which just makes it deeply funny and absolutely fantastic yeah i'm gonna look for all of this and if i can i'm gonna put some show notes there uh do you know do you like for any chance you know uh katherine ryan she, she has become quite famous as a comedian and has shows in you know. yeah so I, I mostly although she's a lot of the time on um like panel shows and equivalent at the moment i first saw her through mm. um there's a television show called campus that uh, that only had one season um, which to some extent I think is a is a relative benefit in that a lot <laughs> of my favorite things 
finish before they were ended. Um, so like the Canterbury Tales, for instance, was never completed. Chaucer just died. Um, and I think that's half the reason why it's such a good piece of work. Um, but Catherine Ryan was the uh, like the university administrator in that. Um, and uh, opposite, acting opposite Andy Nyman, who I'm quite a fan of in that he is uh, probably one of the most influential people in terms of how I do magic thinking, he used to work with Darren Brown, um, but primarily sees himself as an actor. I mean, he is he is both. He is both a magician and an actor and the like. And so I watched the show for him and then um, found Catherine Ryan through that. And I quite like, I, uh, I yeah, dated a Canadian for a while. Stuff, so there's yeah. so there's a lot of uh, <laughs> like specific Canadianisms um, that yeah. I'm like, oh, I've got the context for that. And I like it a lot. So yeah, it's a uh, good fan. <laughs> Uh, does does your work as a magician and mind reader influence you in any way in the work you do as as in in the RPG world? To some extent, yes, directly in a few cases. In that the kind of magic that I perform tends to lean towards like folklore storytelling, so how people connect with each other. So there's some of the content from it, which is that we've got all of these old British stories about this specific thing. And so I might do a trick that relates to that piece of like spoken history. Um, and essentially I'm reading the same books to get the information from that, that I then also do to pull out a load of stuff for like directly creating RPG materials. Um, like invariably almost always going back to like Arthuriana or like Celtic and British folklore from around like the Middle Ages and the like. So there's definitely a lot where I'll draw from the same parts. But I think probably the most the most important thing about how like my experience as a magician, as a mind reader, influences the sort of things I do within the role-playing scene is acknowledging that every like everything is almost like not just intended for an audience. Um in fact the, the way I used to used to describe what RPGs are to people who had no understanding was that it's almost like an improvised radio play where the actors are the only audience, which isn't necessarily true for every single type of game, but tends to give enough of an understanding. But I think the fact that where I'm thinking, it's about who is paying attention and where those people are looking is probably going to change both how I'm imagining it for the people themselves who were playing the game but also from trying to communicate that to people so that they can run things. Um, I think I've been told quite often when I've been running games that I've got quite a, a cinematic style and I tend to describe how things look. And as such, when I'm writing snippets for like, uh, if I'm writing something for a module for somebody to run with something, then I will almost like focus in on those tiny little details. Um, and in my case, I've got a fairly good memory. I can pull things up from experiences that I've had but a lot of the situations there as well are about finding where can I show these things and how can I give people that just that right amount of detail to kind of hang things off of um, there's definitely something different about stage performance compared to screen performance where in a theater a like badly painted flat so like the the uprights at the back of the stage can represent all manner of different things largely based on 
a couple of details and how it's being interacted with. Whereas if we're watching a lot of things intended for screen, there's almost a certain expected like photorealism to it. So I think that case is trying to then find, okay, what are those tiny details that we can kind of hang off of and then, then present those to people so that it's going to form enough of an idea? Because it doesn't matter that everybody around the table is necessarily thinking of the same thing, apart from if we're doing like an incredibly important tactical combat where it's it's genuinely important if I'm two or three paces away from another creature or something. But otherwise, it doesn't matter if everyone's the same. Just that each person has a very strong opinion of what's going on. And so I think it's about how I've then set out a few lines to kind of pop things into so that they can then remain vivid enough for other people to just be able to like spout out, but without feeling, oh, I need to make sure that this is correct to what was written in the first place. Yeah, I think it's it's like trying to navigate uh, a giant cave, a uh, dark cave, and, and mm. you know, uh, you have these few spots of light that helps you, guides you, but what you each player imagines uh, in the darkness can be unique. And, and for me, it's, sometimes it's it's actually better if like every... I think the experience is even richer if like everyone has a different vision of exactly how the world is mm. uh, instead of, you know, everybody seeing the same thing all the time. No, uh, definitely. There's a, there's a game that that reminds me of almost directly, which is um, Lovecraft-esque um, from Black Armada Games. And it's a, it's a GM-less or a GM-full, depending on which, which version you want to go for, game where you have a single protagonist who is exploring a strange Lovecraftian story where they are going into a strange location, picking up clues. And each each scene, then the narrator swaps. So the person who was playing the investigator moves on to the person on the left. Um, someone else is primarily talking about what the environment is like, and any player who's not one of those two can either be a voice there if certain other characters need to appear. But the thing that really makes the game sing, because it's an entirely an improvised horror game, is at the end of every scene, players make private notes about what must be going on and what the reality of this horror is. And at the very, very end of the game, once all of these new clues have been added in, something has come up that that is distinct because it's been designed communally, so the whole group, but not by a committee because yeah. it hasn't been everyone said, well, I think it should be something like this. Someone has just said, well, I think clearly there's some vampiric monster um, that can't be seen when the sun is up. And so has yeah. come up with clues that are related to that, whilst the other person might think, oh, there's a, there's a team of fairies who are stealing things. And eventually all of those things become true. And sadly, because I think a lot of people, and I understand, you're, you're allowed to have fun in your own way, but there is, there's definitely a point at the end of a lot of games where people will, will want to share those secrets with each other. Where I'm like, well, I thought it would be this, and I thought it would be this, which is fine. But I think it's often more interesting if nobody ever shares that information and it forever stays in your head. Um, to the same way that there's a, there's a group that I regularly play, Call of Cthulhu, and we're, we're currently running Eternal Lies, which is the uh, the big campaign from Pelgrane Press. And that group I really love because if we miss clues on an, on an adventure or on an investigation, we'll get to the end and we refuse to ask each other or tell each other what was really going on. And so it keeps it genuinely mysterious in a way, which I think works for the fact that over half the people in the group 
know Lovecraftian stories deeply well. So not going, ah, what was really going on? We just sat there like, I've not got a clue. And I really enjoy that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's it's quite that, rare that these days. That makes a big difference too. Mm. It's, it's make a difference knowing the German we are playing. Like It's like, you know, Fiasco, which is a game about things going wrong, inspired mm. by movies of things going wrong. But you sit down to play with people that want to play to win to you know have good mm. things happen to their character and that's disrupts the game completely but something that like you were saying like how this the mystery is then built collaboratively and how i said about that cave you know and each mm. player experiencing a different way but it kind of in the end a lot of the elements for each person will kind of you know uh pollinate the other person's reality of the game because mm. then you say oh does this have this in this room? Do, do we see a statue of this? And they say, oh, yes, there is. And then that's part of everybody's imagination, too. So mm. little by little, even though each one is unique, they will start sharing parts of the unique world to everybody. So it's it's what RPGs do. And then having a game that explores this in, into an actual mechanic of the game, it's a really, really good way for design. It's a great mm. work, by the way. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's a really effective system. Um, they, I assume it may still be on backer kit that you can kind of support it. They recently ran a second edition, which yeah, they're is making the same a... material, but it's all like card based instead. So it almost it plays out like yeah. a little, a little bit like the the second yeah. edition of Fiasco in the fact that it's like well, rather than a book, let's yeah. give you a box with some yeah. cards. Um, yeah. it, it's just harder for people in Brazil to buy because books are tax free and cards are exactly. not. Exactly. So, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, but. So, Sean, uh, here in the podcast, we're all about the weird, and we see weird as something like weird is the new wonderful. It's kind of the motto of the show. <laughs> but I would like to to ask you, uh, how would you define the weird for you, and your, uh, you know, and how do you seek it in in your in your work and in your life? So, this is this very much comes back to like to my formal training in the. When I was at university, I studied English literature. Um, within that, I primarily focused on medieval literature. And the word weird comes from, I think initially it's Old Norse, at least the, the, the term means the same, where it's like W-Y-R-D. And even like Shakespeare's use of it, it's very much leaning on on that aspect where it's, in a sense, the word weird means the same as fate or kismet or karma or any any of these other things. And the fact that Shakespeare's weird sisters, so it's like the three witches and Macbeth, directly ref, are referred to as that both by themselves and and by, uh, by the title character too when he wanders to go and see them, is almost that there's this direct connection to fate. Um, and so I think... I don't know if it's the case and it's very much it's like it's a folk etymology and I am a folk and this is why I think the word has got into common usage which is that stuff that initially was strange and weird in our in our current current usage of peculiar um things that were weird and stood out as being strange people go oh it must have been fated to be that way and then almost like that aspect of things kind of gets dropped so whenever I consider weird as a as a subject, um, it till it does still tend to focus in on that, like greater length of time, 
and that how things must almost like connect with each other um doubly so in looking for things that are like uncommon and juxtaposed so typically for me something is weird because you wouldn't expect it to go that way um and it's it's flexible as to whether or not you want to like justify that as well the, the universe has a plan um or instead from looking at it from being that well because these things are beside each other it's then going to provoke this additional thought um and yeah really like boils down to for me the things i like about weirdness is that it's kind of for it almost acts like a hinge and you kind of like you're focused on this point that wouldn't otherwise make sense were it not for this and that uh, it's less boring in a way that way um and the more it's a little bit like a like a grit of um like a single grain of sand or a tiny little bit of grit in an oyster where it just gets like layered over and over and over and over by mucus trying to kind of like work at it and just think about it that then at the result of that um then becomes this incredibly valuable pearl but it's just been this like tiny little thing that's just kind of like drilled into the side of your brain that kind of focuses it there and uh yeah, yeah so for, for me that's that's weird that's that's great like the weird as something small that gets your attention and you get to explore it and hone it and you know see it beyond just that detail Mm -hmm. And it can become a pure, and it's, it's a great uh, metaphor for it. And I, I remember, like the the form uh, you filled, you know, when I invited you for the for the podcast, that you mentioned uh, you wouldn't speak Macbeth in 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 a, in a theater. Mm. And what is that about? I mean, I, I know there's superstition in theater, but I, I mean, I'm not that well knowledgeable, and I I bet a lot of people are not as well too. Because we, we don't study English literature mm. and in and, and, and theater in, in Brazil and stuff. So uh, what's it's, that about? So in general, um, Macbeth, or as you'll often hear it referred to, the Scottish play, um, because it's, it's about the King of Scotland, um, was considered um, to be cursed in lots of different ways. There's, there's many examples of uh, productions where things have gone very, very bad. Um, to the point where actors who are who are a superstitious lot in general um, eventually decided that it would be it would be inviting bad luck to say its name in a theater or to say its name if it weren't like directed by the script within that sort of situation um, part of that almost is because of its history as well uh, Macbeth is a very good example of a piece of um, a piece of media designed to attract a very, very wealthy patron um, in that it's the story of uh, the King of Scotland um, who becomes the King of Scotland by killing the former King of Scotland. Um, and he does that solely because witches have told him that he will become the king. And uh, so he kind of, he takes them on this word and functionally becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. But the play was only written because at this point, uh, Queen Elizabeth I had, had just died. Um, she famously had no children. And so the monarchy then passed up to, to King James, who at that time was King of Scotland. It was, uh, it was the James VI, I think, in Scotland, uh, but the first um, in England, and then becomes this 
like king of Britain in a way. Um, and so Shakespeare, whose works had been enjoyed throughout the uh, the previous chunk of time, realised that King James was a huge fan of witchcraft in that he hated it, uh, wrote a number of things on like how mm. to spot a witch. Um, and so Shakespeare then wrote a play and it's like, right, well, if, if this guy's just come on the throne and he hates witches, let's write a play about how witches are bad. And, and in this case, the witches are like direct, although it's like Hecate turns up at one point. Um, there's, there's some arguments as to whether or not the lines of hers were actually added in by a different playwright at another point, but, but very specifically, the witches are agents of evil. Um, they are bad people doing bad things for pitiful reasons. Um, there's a point where this witch is walking along the street um, and there's a woman eating chestnuts. She's like, oh, can I have one? And the woman's like, no, these are my chestnuts. Mm. Uh, and so because of that then causes this woman's husband, who's at sea, to be storm-wrecked for like 40 days or something. Um and so the witches are, are not nice people compared to if we look back at like uh, either you've kind of got like the Norns within Norse mythology, you've got like the Grey Sisters um, within Greek mythology, you've got all of these like triplets of people who are neutral um, and who are very powerful. They kind of are connected to this whole idea of fate, whereas Shakespeare then wrote it as these three witches are just mean horrid people they are uh, almost like roots for devilishness to go ahead uh, and so the king loved it and um because the uh, the play is very much about evil and like man's capacity for evil and then because of that uh shakespeare then uh was was functionally bought by the king in that his uh, his company became known as the king's players and uh, and received basically as much money as he would need to uh, to continue to do things throughout his life but because of all of both the content of the play being about evil and the fact that there have been some historical cases of bad luck relating to this play, um, it's almost a joke in some senses. But I know, for instance, that uh, that like Judy Dench will not say the name um, unless she absolutely has to. Um, and for uh, for an RPG, RPG link, uh, Dame Judy Dench, uh, most widely universally known as... Um, if uh, if you've seen like the Pierce Brosnan era and the early Daniel Craig era James Bond film, she was M within that, and uh, absolutely lovely actor. Um, she was port, uh, taught how to play Dungeons and Dragons uh, by Vin Diesel, so um, so it, it all loops back around to role playing games. But uh, yeah, so I think no. so. I, I won't say Macbeth in a theatre, um, but mostly that's <laughs> as as a way of joke in that uh, there's lots of other superstitions about um, like not walking on three drains in a row because it's bad luck somehow that I'll actively avoid. No. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's, I think it's quite funny to, to maintain some yeah. superstitions that are functionally entirely arbitrary. Yeah. Do you have any superstitions in the RPG world? Like I know people don't, don't want people touching their dice or, you know, I don't, I don't anything. think so. Not that I can... And I imagine it's because if it's... So if I'm running games for friends, all of the things I bring to the table are very much intended for everyone, the same as if I were like hosting a dinner party or something. Um, and also from a perspective of even my most like valuable objects are still tools. And so I'd rather 
I'd rather that they get used properly. Um, I've yeah. got a, uh, I've got a, a very nice solid silver, I say solid silver, solid steel um, D6 that is like an inch cube, and I'll, like everyone play. I mean, n- no one can destroy that. It's it's almost indestructible. It'll yeah. outlive probably everything else connected to me. But I think solely because I've spent so much time in like performance and event spaces, that's probably quashed any sort of um, superstitions that are around there. Although I definitely do, it's probably about maybe a third or so of the people that I play with, either at like regular games as part of like a local club or at conventions, who do seem to have a superstition of that sort. Um, and for the most part, I, um, I, I I leave them to their superstitions. I, I let them continue. Um, yeah. Perhaps the biggest superstition yeah, I've right. got is, um, is related to like books, but not so much role-playing books, in that I... Uh, I will always read the last word of a book so that I can say, I know exactly how it ends. It ends with the word town or something. I don't know how the story ends necessarily. (laughs) Um, I had to stop doing that with short stories because often short stories hinge the big reveal on the very final word. But, uh, but part of my brain was that if I, if I am, if I die before I finish this book, at least I already know how it ends. Um, So that's probably the closest (laughs) thing to a superstition in that sense. Yeah, that's 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 a great. I never never thought about this. Like, hey, yeah, I know how this book ends. I don't know how it's the beginning or the middle, but you know, <laughs> the very end. You know, I know. <laughs> uh, do you do you think RPGs are intrinsically you know weird? And if you do, would you share with us what would be you know your favorite weird part of it? So I think that that they are um there's something about almost like the process the process by which we kind of like play them um isn't that different from almost like from a religious rite in a sense where we arrange we find like either systems or ways of inviting specific people to a specific event to like produce and like and create entire like worlds and personalities and and things um not only is it kind of just like an act of creation in the same way that like painting or drawing or storytelling is i think the fact that it is explicitly collaborative um and also i was reading some things earlier today about solo role playing and i think in that case it still is collaborative in that think people will criticize yes. it by saying well if i wanted to play a game on my own i'd just read a book or write a book but i think you're directly collaborating with an external system with the rules with something yes. that is the oracles yeah something that's prompting you separately from what you would do yourself and so i think in that way it is it is weird um in that it sets itself apart from a lot of other things that we do um you were talking about comedy earlier and there have been a couple of times recently where I've seen some comedy and I've sat there thinking, um, this is deeply human in that for as long as we've had humans, humans have gathered around and listened to someone telling stories or have turned up to go to the storyteller. I mean, the very first chapter in The Wheel of Time, um, to be fair, I'm only a third of the way through the first book. So I'm aware and I've, it's been two years since I've carried on reading it. So. So this this memory is is the strongest one for me. But at the very, very beginning of that book, 
all of the characters are excited because a storyteller's come into town. But with role-playing games, everyone's the storyteller. And so the situation yeah. is very similar to things that we've always been doing. And in the same way that like kids naturally know how to role play. And if you, so I spent 10 years as a teacher and you see it less when students kind of are older, because I worked with 11 to 18 year olds, but there's certainly still quite a few places where just naturally we'll like either drop into like particular roles or play about and create a story in this sense. And so the fact that as adults, we sit, we sit down, we plan out when we can meet up to create a story to kind of like let something live through the grouping of all of us together, I think is, is quite a weird thing. Um, and even, even yeah. beyond that, the, the sheer unlikeliness of it having succeeded as an art form and then the impact it's had is, is quite great in that so much of what comes down to things of how the, the, entire processes not process but like the the whole of the industry and the, the the culture around it has grown out from three different tables of gamers around one lake in one place in the world and that as a single thing has then gone on to influence so many other stuff so even like the second role-playing game tunnels and trolls um kent and andre who who refuses to even say the words dungeons and dragons read it thought well, this is ridiculous because he wasn't a war gamer and so but was a librarian and so then created a thing directly based on the laws of storytelling and the like um so many things directly come about from just this tiny little thing that makes no sense and then everyone's saying oh my god have you have you seen this have you heard this and so how it kind of almost like spreads out and builds from that and so i certainly yeah. think that the history of gaming in that sense and just the sheer amount of things it's impacted um like modern video games wouldn't have been the same were it not for role-playing games. Um, even though there's a lot of almost like sport style games that have existed um, uh, to the point where like at the time of recording um, this uh, Tetris was, was beaten for the first time. And uh, for the fact that a um, 13 year old boy, I think um, managed to get to the point where the game, just cannot produce blocks quickly enough, and so force crashes. Um, it's the first time a human has done that. And so things like that aren't innately linked to how role-playing games have gone. But so much of other things directly trace their lineage back to this deeply unlikely thing to have happened, to have been so so massively statistically influential on things. Um, and I think that's really weird. And, uh, and yeah, the... Uh, the fact that it's still that it still has an impact on how we choose to gather and play things today. Yeah, and, and it's still impacting, you know, other medias. It's still mm. a very young art form, and you're, you're still exploring its limits. You're still exploring what it can do. What's you're exploring uh, how we can play with it. Mm -hmm. And and what you said about you know solo games still being collaborative. And, and and for me, I think our art is collaborative. Even as you said, no, if I want to play all alone, I would just write a book. But you're, you're mm. still referencing stories you've read, uh, things you experienced, people that talked to you. So we're still drawing for you know external sources as you create everything. I'm a big believer, uh, you know, 
in artists, all artists collaborative. I love mm. that Surek an artist book. And yeah. And something else you said about, you know, how kids are can naturally role play and you start losing this. And we are, as adults, we have like to schedule time, you know, to role play. And, and I think everybody benefits for like just playing, not, mm. not necessarily, you know, role play, but something that uh, uses your imagination, your creativity, something that, you know, gets you out of your mundane thoughts, like your problems, mm. your issues with this, with that, and helps you, uh, your mind just rests for a bit and, you know, create something, be it with role-playing games or making art or, you mm. know, uh, just pretending or even reading, like getting really into that space and forget everything else. I think it's a, a, a healthy way. Uh, but I don't know, at least for our generation, I mean, I think it's mm. changing. I think we are all seeing how this is important for everybody. But I mean, for us, it's like, yeah, you're too old for this. Now you have to work, you have to study, you have to, you know, take life seriously. It's weird for uh, like a no, my parents hated that I used to play role-playing games. That's mm -hmm. you know, it's make believe. You know, it's you're wasting your time. You should be doing this or that. And yeah, no, I remember. Um, I think probably when I was fifteen or something, that that my dad would criticize some that some of the time that I would spend playing certain games, so more often things like Magic: The Gathering and the like, um, and role-playing games were kind of adjacent to that but not so much the focus um to the point where i will now point out well no here are all of these specific things that i've achieved explicitly because i've just played those games um to the fact that a uh, yeah. what was it um when i was growing up the like the first major series of books that i collected were the fighting fantasy books uh so like starting with warlock of fire top mountain and the rest always going onwards yeah. um and so, like, my, uh, well, one, one of the, the founders of that has, has since been knighted. Um, so, like, the, the very mm -hmm. British, the very British institution of the monarchy has been like, no, this is, this, this man is clearly massively important to the entirety of the world. Um, and the fact that because of all of these spaces that I've been in, like, I've, I've just met him a load of times to the point where he remembers who I am and, like, he owns stuff that I produced, um, and it's a situation yeah. like that where I can say, well, yes, I may have been playing a stupid childish game, but also I've achieved all of these solid adult things directly as a result of them. Yeah. Um, and I think the success has come because I wasn't using it as a stepping stone thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to leverage this to get to the next point? It reminds me of a way in that, I don't know if it's still the case. I imagine it was stopped for a while. It may be re-implemented. Um, but I read something about like software development. And many years ago, uh, during the time when Google's first first part of his motto was don't be evil, um, there was a, a policy where on Fridays or half of Fridays or something, all of the engineers there could work on whatever they wanted, absolutely anything, using the full range of tools that the company had, like suite of tools. Um, and every now and then, perhaps it was every month or so on, there would be an open meeting where people would be like, here's a thing I've worked on, here's some stuff. And a vast majority of the like new products and like expanded bits of software that were coming out of the company in that era had come about because every Friday 
these intelligent people with very good tools were just messing around. Um, and they yeah, weren't messing around to try and important. find the next thing. But because they had this space to play around, then suddenly it was like, oh, no, actually, this could really be useful in other places too. Yeah. So I think it's... That's the, the universe conspiring thing. Mm, no, exactly. That's the universe conspiring thing I said. Like, if you if you let space for something to show up, it, it will show up. But if you're mm. always, like, just thinking ahead of this thing and not paying attention what's around you, what's going to, you know, pop up, you, mm. you will lose this, this kind of stuff, yeah. No, like, there's a lot of... Um, oh, I can't remember the... There's a specific quote i got i think i initially found it in like a michael Pollan documentary which i think is based on a book of his as well um where if if we were to just eat the ingredients of bread so like flour and water uh, and yeast i suppose we would die that doesn't give us enough nutrients to survive but by making bread there's something about that process that there are enough nutrients. I mean, we wouldn't necessarily be very healthy um but we could survive on bread alone until we managed to get something else um yeah and you can only make bread if there's space and time for it to to grow and to do and to be yeah. um and if you certain things where if you try and rush them it's just it's just not going to it's not going to work um and i think building those yeah. those holes and those spaces into how we're doing things is is really quite an important thing for sure and that's something that i'm constantly worrying about for for today you know for my kid how mm. the world is ever more about immediatism you always mm. things have to work right now and and it has you know you click and it plays like i always say to to him that no you know the world is, is not netflix you can mm. just push a button and something will happen yeah. and sometimes the, the the best stuff will take you a long time to make you know you know that that you know delayed gratification how that's how we got a lot of the stuff that we, we love today and that's immediate mm -hmm. and like it, it, it takes a lot to to make you know so that's something that i'm, I'm always worrying about you know mm. uh sean do you do you have any any kind of ritual for for when you make your art for when you write or when for when you are going to perform your mind as a mind reader or as a magician so to some extent, yes. Um, some of these rituals are almost like they're they're beneficial for the uh, for the sake of things. So if I if I'm about to go on a stage, if I'm about to form perform, um, I will ensure that I don't accidentally need to go to the toilet throughout it uh, to not be crude and go into the details of how. Um, but so there's certain things like that where it's because it's just part of the setup and the process it almost it becomes the ritual um there was a point where i was doing um front of housework at the the magic circle which is i think the second ever uh, magicians like at least modern magician society to exist um it's been based out of london for over 100 years now and um on Tuesday nights, they would quite often have a show that would go on that members of the public would turn up and see things. And whenever I was there, and although I wasn't performing, I was still sort of doing the, well, there were some minor performings part of Comparing Act. But there's still so much of the regular process of, well, here is 
here is the sequence of events that I do when I'm preparing to do something like that, that very much, because it's always the same and always the same kind of uh, like version of things, it will put me into the mindset to do those things. Um, I've definitely seen in a lot of, uh, like, especially things like adjacent to like lyric games and kind of like story game designers talking about the creation of a magic circle as part of the process of play where certain aspects generate specific versions of of play for and even in the same way that in like um modern trad gaming someone saying roll for initiative is such a meme because it it signals this transformation of type and of things and it itself functions as a kind of like the drawing of the magic circle in that way um if i'm being creative there's some things that i do that almost are kind of akin to like to augury to like I, I describe them as like mining cosmic static to try and get ideas where if I know that I want to create a dungeon or a wilderness exploration or something, but I don't necessarily know what I want to do it with. Um, I will generate a series of random numbers. Um, like connect them, connect them up to like to different concepts, to different identities. So uh, there's a, like a system of cartomancy um, that I will use, which is, essentially like using playing cards to tell the future and the like where each suit represents a different emotion or a theme. So for instance, like spades are regret, um, like hearts are fear, for instance. And each of the different values represents a different identity within that. So I will draw a number of cards. Each of those then represents a concept or a person. And then how I'm connecting those to each other will generate the seed for what it is that I want to create as, as a situation. Um, much of that I kind of gained out of um, I was doing some play testing for Fearful Symmetries, which is a product that Pelgrane put out, um, which is for Trail of Cthulhu, where you play like magic users in, and the, the standard version of it is in Oxford, um, in Oxford in England, and you are people who are using William Blake's cosmology to kind of set up a um, like to set up a magical system and the big secret oh it's it's all Cthulhu stuff in the background um, which is the structure for the game um, but then there's part of that and here's how you can create things which um, oh, I can't remember the name of it it's the folklore chain or something similar um, that Steve wrote about in that where it's considering that you're always going to need peop- like people to involve an entity some reactions all of these different things provide environments to kind of consider. And so once I've then drawn a load of playing cards, I'll then go, okay, well, out of all of these playing cards, which one best represents the person involved? So I'll kind of assign that. Um, out of all of these cards, which one best represents the location? And so I'll kind of assign them this way. So it is, it's not a ritual in the same sense of providing a specific like emotional base for things but it is still a ritualized process of well i don't have an idea i want to work with here is a thing that can then create an idea um it's kind of like conceptual alchemy in a way i think yeah yeah it's like how a lot of people use generators to create stuff and and i've been thinking how you know maybe having generators with images and symbols instead of you know of alphanumerical words mm. and numbers 
might even be more sparring because you you can interpret that image and that symbol in many different ways. And I was creating something for Prima Quest of in this way, and 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 I've I've done it a lot. Like I I'm on right on adventure, so I have a basic idea, mm. but then I I roll on some tables and and add stuff and modify it according to, you know, those tools and because they help us, as you said, like a collaborative collaborative mm -hmm. way of creating things like even if you make the tables yourself you're like collaborating with some yourself from the past in some mm. way right yeah no there's um yeah. there's that quote about uh you can't walk through the same river twice because it's not the same man nor the yes. same river um and in that same way if you are only thinking with how you are in your current present sense it's it's going to play up in the same way that you normally expect it to Whereas if there's any form of, even if, again, even if it's tables you wrote 10 years ago, there's something yeah. about that was like crystallized at that moment that is just sufficiently different. And I think it's quite interesting where, especially if you look back on early work and go, oh, I didn't like this, or, oh, I thought this is a lot better than I expected. Because it's very yeah. much of its time compared to you and you have changed since then, how you're then reflecting and acting that is then going to provoke an entirely new thought that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for this specific reflection. So it's, yeah, it's kind of um, it's yeah. turtles all the way down. Yeah, and it helps you see the same thing in different lights. Like it's it's almost like our eyes. Like if we're only seeing with one eye, it's kind of one dimension, but like the both are seeing the same thing, but the image is only complete. We're only seeing like this two-dimensional reality for mm. seeing with both. So. Even for creating something with ourselves, we're complete a uh, more complete image if we're like collaborating collaborating with someone. Do you can you identify any any particular place where you draw most of your ideas from? Like for example, I'm I'm all about the the stuff that I was really connected when I was a, a kid, you know, a teenager. So you know, pop culture like comics. Uh, movies and and toys and and cartoons that I used to watch. So I I know in consciousness I, I draw from that very much because that's something that I really like. Well, of course I, I still you know draw from every place because I'm, I'm I like to be surprised. But do you have any any particular you no know, source for inspiration that you are constantly looking to? Yeah, so probably the biggest. It's like the biggest resource or like library of things from that is like folkloric tales from from around the world. Mostly, most of them just tend to be British because I'm sufficiently old that I've got access to some very good books on British folklore. There's um, if if you're interested in British folklore, the very best book to pick up for that is the Reader's Digest Guide to the Mythology of the British Mythology and Folklore of the British Isles. And it's got um, the Dorset Usa on its on its cover, which is this like strange, almost like ogre looking face with like giant horns um, that one village does a march on every year where they wear this mask. And it's beyond that, it's, it's nothing. But it's um it's a wonderful book that just goes through and lists a load of specific stories by by time and place and history. Some of them um, are connected to others in a way where like the book will say this is similarish to these different stories um but there's just so many things where especially if i go and like look at a map and i then go and spot oh what's what's over here what's what is one country believed in at one point um so the fact that like the cockatrice for instance um is a creature that 
crops up regularly in all manner of like dungeon games but it it comes from a specific place like Whirlwell Abbey like I actually drove past it the other day on the way down to visit my parents for Christmas and uh, it's just one story that came from one place that has then just seeded out and become sufficiently commonly used and then like across a, a large variety of different sorts of games so that's probably one of the single biggest ones um my favorite thing to find with weird folklore is uh, again in britain there are lots and lots of pubs um and many pubs will have like patriotic or religious names so for instance like the red lion is the single most named pub in england um and the Red Lion, in that case, just represents, if you ever see the uh, the coat of arms for the British Isles, then there's a lion and a unicorn on it, the lion representing England, the unicorn representing Scotland. Um, and so in that case, the pub is just named, basically, it's just country is pretty much the reason of it. And it's, it's a popular name for that. Uh, the other one being like the mitre, uh, so like the Pope hat. So it's like, this is a religious area, so we're going to call it from this. But one of the most common types of pub name that isn't that will be something like the Badger and Bishop. Um, and almost always they tend to crystallise a very specific place, a piece of local folklore that now just exists in like the name of the pub and maybe the, the sign which kind of like depicts what's going on there. And so one thing that I quite like doing is to just look in places that are new to me and then just see names of things crop up and then partially like dive down into what the true history was but then also because i've read so many folklore tales i'm i've kind of got a like a feel for the standard structure of them so i can just look at a name like that and go oh clearly it's a story where this and this and this and this would happen um similar almost in a way to which like aesop's fables are shared just by their name beyond a certain point like people will say oh it, it reminds you of like the story of the tortoise and the hare for instance and so because I've like seen enough, I can go, well, I've just got the name. I'll work out the rest, um, which I think is quite fun. So they're two of my biggest influences. The third one is kind of more stylistic um, and quite a big tear away from that one, uh, which is it's a film, uh, specifically the film Layer Cake from 2004, I think, um, which is directed by Matthew Vaughan, who uh, later went on to direct like the Kingsman films. Um but previously was executive producer for Guy Ritchie, so worked on things like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, films like that. It's basically a crime caper film um, where some some likely lads find access to some crime things and bad stuff happens and people are idiots and it's it's all full of like double crossing and it would it's not quite one of those films where if people just said what they were thinking and feeling, everything would be fixed because everyone's a criminal and everyone's kind of like hiding things out from each other. But it's probably got the single biggest influence on the sorts of stories I set up for games, the kind of environments where there's not really a good way to get out of things. Um, and half the time it's kind of nonsense harebrained schemes that only work because you can kind of rely on two or three other people's egos to sort of balance them out so uh yeah if uh if you've not seen layer cake uh, either yourself or, or anyone listening um but are a fan of those kind of silly crime capers um with uh, with quite a bit of violence in this one actually um so it's, it's a lot more violent than the italian job but it's definitely got that same level of 
people are trying something way beyond their capacity and and doing as best as they possibly can um then uh, then that's probably the single biggest influence on the specific games that i run nice yeah well, i'll check it out for sure uh and do you do you identify besides that uh particular maybe creators artists writers or you know anyone that's used maybe as a model for how you you approach your work or how you portray yourself in the community or anything like this or how you approach creativity so yeah there's, there's a few um yeah. probably one of the one of the best ones to think about is um convenient for the uh, for the title of the podcast is um is weird writer who uh, who is a blogger we're in um like similar discord scenes and the like particularly um like through uh through like fkr space so like free creeks bill role playing and weird writer who blogs at roll to doubt um is uh, is brazilian like yourself um but i think the way in which he talks about moments of play and how how we interact with 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 rules or with settings or within uh like the wider culture around things just tends to really influence not necessarily directly the things he has written because quite often he's been involved in the same discussions that I've been involved in when like overlapping in terms of like where we'll actually have kind of conversations about this but it's one of the cleanest places to go and look to see the kind of environment that like I'm discussing things in at the moment um there's a piece that he wrote that I'm really um is probably going to What's his name? Uh so weird writer um it goes for um roll to doubt is the, oh, uh, okay. is the blog um and uh yeah it's got got a piece about demences which are almost like the kind of like weird gothic environments like um like the castle from the beauty and the beast for instance where it's it's this large place that kind of exists solely to support one monster within and the whole place of that and how that plays out and that's probably going to be like my single biggest influence on the kinds of games that I'm running, especially early this year. Um, so his writing is certainly going to be one of them. Um, there's quite a lot of just like wider different spaces of things otherwise, though. I don't think that there's a particular, oh, I get my inspiration from this direct place. Um, although a lot of, in the sense that... Um, how you like fill your tank as a kind of verse. So that's again something that I got from Austin Clayon of um, Still Like an Artist is the whole idea that you've got to get ideas in as well. Oh, sorry, I just need to just need to cough. Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old-school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. Hello, weirdos. This is Diogo Nogueira, and I'm back with a word from our sponsors. Me. I just released a new game called Cosmosaurus, in which you play a dinosaur space ranger who protects the galaxy from evil threats such as slime bankers, undead pirates and cosmosaurus from a void dimension. 
It's a game with a runes light system inspired by Forge in the Dark and Lasers and Feelings. Uh, it comes with a bunch of tables for you to generate content for it. If you know my games, they are really easy to play and they have tools to help you improvise and play with low prep. It's an ideal game for one-shots, short campaigns and introducing new people to the hobby and it's a really perfect family game. I play with my kids all the time. It's a game inspired by Saturday morning cartoons. It's really well illustrated uh, by Lukas Kowalski from Poland and with a great layout by Guilherme Gontijo. It's a really fun game, you should check it out on DriveThruRPG, itch.io or exclusively in print on ExaltedFuner.com. I have many other games there, check them out, all the links are in the show notes, so click there. And let's get back to Weird with our chat. Yeah, I was looking for the Road, road to Doubt uh, blog here. Yeah, he, he mentions Brazilian, but I, I have no idea who he is. <laughs> I've no idea where he is either. Um, yeah, and because I haven't learned already, yeah. I'm not going to ask. Um, I, I haven't, I haven't heard about it, but it's quite a lot of stuff. So great. Mm. Yeah. The um, the stuff particularly that's kind of a a breakdown of the of like a lot of FKR play um, is probably one of the best summaries of the kind of like the state of like modern discourse within that scene at the moment, which I think is quite fun. Um, but yeah, so within the, within the sense of like filling your tanks the same way that, which I think is an idea that I stole from Austin Cleon, who wrote Still Like an Artist, a load of material that I'm watching at the moment, um, is there's a, there's a YouTuber called Josh Strife Hayes, who, um, has a large number of different channels focusing on things. Some of them are retrospectives on specific games where he will play games from, the past 20, 30 years, and then critique them with like a modern sensibility of just this stand up now. Is this essentially a like a modern classic or something of the sort? And he's just, he's got quite a nice voice. Um, the way in which he talks about things is quite effective. And because a lot of the content he covers is stuff. So there's like the big, the big thing that kind of got me on, onto watching a load of his material was he did a, uh, a retrospective of the um, the Death Trap Dungeon video game, which existed on PC and on PlayStation, uh, PlayStation Two, I think, um, and it's a terrible game. Um, it's very much not good. It's difficult. Um, it's uh, it's mostly linear. The monsters design in it is just a bit nonsense. It's barely based on the book which it's licensed from. Um, it was released around the time of a load of genuinely great games came out as well. And so I was watching that um, and the way in which you discuss and talk about things, I really enjoyed. And so the more of his material I was watching that's typically about games that I've never played is interesting because I'm seeing stuff that I'd always been aware of and had intended to pick up myself at some point being spoken about by someone who's quite similar to myself in the fact that we've... Um, we're of about the same age. We've got quite similar sort of like speaking patterns. Um, there's a lot of like overlap in terms of the sorts of games that we like and the times of things that we do. And so for somebody who has experienced all of these other things that are stuff that I'd considered but had never got to myself, it's quite nice in that then looking at them through that lens, it's almost like how um, like my brother and I or still friends and I will sit down and we'll like play video games 
like just solo games next to each other will kind of take it in turns and, and swap over who's who's actually in control at any one point but just sitting down with something and watching somebody else playing and also talking about it at the same time will then prompt ideas for oh i've not thought of something like that before or we might just steal concepts from that and then apply them in in separate ways but it's yeah the more distinct sparks they can kind of like set me off i think the more effective it can be so uh i'd say those two are probably the uh the biggest overlap of um, of influences at the moment, but in terms of exact amounts of influence, I read far too much. Yeah, I w- listen to far too much. There's, yeah. it's I could never do a comprehensive list. <laughs> yeah, it's it's possible. It's just more the you know the ones that really over the top of your head right now. So, mm. uh, what's the name of the YouTuber you you mentioned? So it's Josh uh, Strife. Okay. Hayes. Okay. George Strife. I'll try to put that on the show notes too. And quite interesting because uh, that can be quite informative for you know game designers to mm. see those old games and see what works, what not, and you know maybe even draw their own conclusion. Like check out those games too. Mm, no, definitely. Oh, Sean, are you working on on any project right now? And would you like to share with us uh, what's going on or what's your favorite weird part of it? Yeah, so the the biggest the biggest like project I'm currently working on. I've just um, actually today got the uh, the announcement that the that the previous biggest one that I was on has has just actually shipped out to all of the people now. So we've we've crossed the finish line, which was um, I was the editor on uh, on a zine called uh, "You Meet in a Tavern, You Die in a Dungeon," um, which is a game where, as the title suggests, you meet in a tavern, you create your characters who have all got this backstory. And they will go down to a dungeon where they will all die. So it's the sort of thing that will like play out in a single night. Um, you could play extended versions of it as well if you wanted to. The next big thing is actually something more that I'm then looking back at material that I'd produced myself and had created. Like practiced it over the years when I was teaching. Um, I was playtesting this game, functioning with the the students in the in the RPG club, the school that I was running. And uh, the game itself is Quarrel and Fable, um, for which it's it's literally a case of going to the going to the thesaurus and swapping out the two words fighting and fantasy and swapping them into something else, um, which I'm not sure if anybody has spotted yet, despite the fact that the game's been out for oh gosh six years I think in total, but it only currently exists in digital form. Uh, the digital rules are, are free online. They've been like the PDF of it has been free solidly i think for about three or four years now and the intention is that that will always be free but one of my goals for this year is along with a few of the like smaller modules and things i put together with it is to bring it to the point where it becomes like a solid physical product um there's there's quite a few things where i've got materials that i've like i've seen various people have, like printed them off i've got a version of other things that way but i think actually kind of getting a book in such a way that it's a specific physical object that the people can can hold and pass on because although um although there's a certain amount of like digital archaeology that exists it would be quite nice to get this specific thing into a um into libraries as well so they're kind of like it can it can be picked up it can be played um as a game it's 
it's primarily almost like fueled from the nostalgia I had of reading like adventure game books as a child. But the single weirdest thing about it is that it's a so it's a kind of like medieval fantasy world, um, like a lot of other stuff within like the British OSR scene. It's thematically quite influenced by stuff like early Warhammer, and the um, the the style of it I've quite often heard described as like spit and gristle, um, where you're kind of like focused on like just the horrid, very very basic things. So you um you're not playing the world's biggest heroes. You're playing like a few soldiers who are trying to survive um, when a demon turns up. And uh, many fantasy games have got big long lists of spells. Um, and there's when the in the core game there's there's thirty spells in this. But the the key point being that it's it isn't the characters who memorize them; it's the players who do. Um, so something that I stole from the sorcery series by Steve Jackson is that all of the spell codes are, are keyed to. Well, each spell is key to like a three-letter code. And so in order to cast the spell, you need to have any components that are required for it. And you then need to recount this spell in the game. Uh, the idea being that when you're like when you've got access to your spell book, you can spend time memorizing and doing things this way. Um, but in the middle of combat, you can't go and check your notes. And what I found is that running it at conventions, especially um, early on when you've got someone who's decided, right, I want to be a wizard. And it's going to go through and pick out two or three spells that they really want to learn and they really want to remember them. And so they're going to focus on, right, I want to do these sorts of things. And uh, there's, I think there's only one or two spells in there that are directly, obviously useful. Like there's, there's a few things where you can like ignite some dust to, to, to hurl it at someone as a kind of like magic missile style thing. Um, but there's other ones where it just like any reflective surface, you can kind of summon some like dark fey entity to have a conversation with, um, which it's in control that you can kind of have a chat with and so on. Um, so there's all of these things which kind of exist as a, as different fulcrums to kind of like push and play against things with. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, again, it's something that I've been, I've been playing quite a lot of the time. Um, a load of other people I've seen got like reports for playing various stuff with it as well. And uh, I think the furthest it's got, uh, I had a report relatively recently from somebody in Chile who was playing it, which is quite fun. So there's, uh, but there's yeah. just a case of it's always wanna... great. Oh, it's just so nice. It's always great to receive these reports from people you know living really far away from that you wouldn't you know expect and no, it's amazing seeing reviews in languages you have no way of you know understanding what they're mm -hmm. saying. Yeah. There was um, a point years ago where oh, I think it was. Gosh, maybe it was even like 2018 or maybe even earlier than that, um, where somebody got in touch and was like, do you mind if I translate this into Japanese? Um, and then did entire thing. And it was like, oh, my goodness, this is incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, just seeing the kind of like the weird small other things that kind of crop up from that. So my uh, my big goal this year is to um, is to, well, is to oust Paizo. So I'm not going to I doubt I'm going to win, but I, I expect mm -hmm. I expect that I want to be known by more Brits than pathfinder um not the, it's not going to work for the world wow, but if you yeah. turn up in a random game shop in england then uh, then i hope that people will know will know what it is that's the uh, that's the target yeah, at least that's, that's great yeah. you mentioned uh, in, you know in brawling fable how is the players that have to memorize the spells and other characters but mm. how does that work in practice do they have to memorize the you know the three letters 
sequence or what it is that they have to memorize to cast it? It's the three so, yeah, letters? So it's, it is the three letters. Um, and so some of them, um, some of them are quite almost like simple and, uh, and directly relevant to what the effect is. Uh, so there's a spell called Yap, which is Y-A-P, which uh, summons like the shadow of a dog uh, that will like guard like guard you overnight. So like if somebody approaches that's strange, then it will start yapping and you'll wake up. Uh, or if there's any strange smells. Um, and so it's a case of recalling what the spell is. Um, but as part of that with the game as well, I'd I'd mixed up the exact letters that you've got. So all of the spells in the very core book um, use the same, I think there's five opening letters and then six um and then six mm. pairs of like follow-up letters. So there's a spell called Yap, and there's also a spell called Yad, and Yad pushes somebody like three meters away. Um, and so if you think you know what it is, and you're not quite exactly if, right. Then instead, it it pushes. If they off the say spot. the wrong one, if they say the wrong one, they can use the the wrong spell, even if they yeah. haven't memorized it or anything. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's it's almost from a perspective of because I'm I quite like the so idea. So it's like of everybody has our spells. Yeah, Does everybody potentially have all spells if you can memorize all of them? Yeah, exactly. So there's a there's a cost to them in that you can't use them infinitely. You're, you're in the same way oh, that... Okay. Um, so you see it in Troika as well, because Troika's also born yeah, from the same, the same flesh. Yeah. yeah, so like your spells will cost a certain amount of stamina, which prevents you just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and in some cases, so a dedicated wizard will be better because they'll have more skills to cast magic in different positions. So they'll have like more resources where if they're in a combat, they can force their spells through at the moment. That's going to be important. But it also means that like, even just, just a random thug in the street might know a bit of magic, um, which very much fits in with a kind of the weird folkloric aspect of just a load of like a load of British stories from the 1400s. Um, there's a lot of things where it's just, Magic is strange and weird, um, but it's not so commonplace that nobody nobody's ever seen it. It's not like, goodness, we've never seen any... Like It's not like Gandalf turns up and has got all of these powers. It's like, oh, no, every single person is related to someone who thinks that they're a witch. Um, and there's a few things they can do. And so it kind of... I know it's, it's that kind of like whimsy and commonplaceness of it, I can suppose. It, can it fail too? So, you know, people, even though they know the words, they, they can fail because now I imagine uh, what stops someone from just writing the words in their hands so they can, you know, use the powers. But it's, it, it's stamina and you can still fail like a guess. Yeah, spell so there's, there's a couple of different, um, there's a couple of different like failure points. One of them is if if somebody wrote it on the hand, I'd 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 say that they're they're kind of cheating. I mean, they're welcome to, but it's a bit of a cheat. Um, yeah, I, I would say that <laughs> their character is has on their hand too, so everybody will see they have a That's spell true. written yeah, on no, their hand. Yeah, that could work well. Yeah. Um, but so essentially, there's a couple of other things. Like some of the spells require specific components, probably about a third of them. And so if you don't have that object, the spell won't work. And if you try and cast a spell, you can't. Then there's a there's a relatively small um, like spell misfiring table in that, mostly because when I'm running things, I tend to, on different days, pull from different kind of like fumble tables or something for the spells. Yeah. 
Um, but they still roll to cast a spell, or is it like automatic? So if there's the if there's no like no time issues, they can just cast it. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. If it's in combat, then they need to make a roll to cast it. And on a success, it will happen immediately. On a fail, it will happen at the very end of the round. So, oh, okay. So it's still in that casting. case, and like, yeah. But if you get hit before that happens, yeah, then the whole thing goes off, and then kind of like it, it messes itself up. Yeah. So there's a kind of um, you choose how risky you want to be, um, which I think is the real benefit to it. And because the the other part of the game that plays out is almost resource based where you've got a number of points in, within a special skill so troika is a fairly good example in the sense that you can, you can you can use backgrounds from troika within quarrel and fable the rules just refer to the numbers in slightly separate ways um so you may have two points in magic and that's two specific instances where you can expend some energy to get better success on a roll and so it could be that you just decide you want to flip a coin on it and see if you're going to be lucky or it could be that you're hoarding all of these resources, knowing that, well, soon we're going to go and talk to this specific person, and I want to be in the absolutely best position to be successful then. And uh, almost um, the benefit of it being that way is that people can choose if they want to be someone who chances it more often, or if they want to be someone who's planning out how they're doing things. Like You could have a skill that's massively broad, and then would apply in so many more situations that you've got more opportunities to use them. And so you're more likely to use them up and run out of them. Or you've got yeah. a situation where you can kind of very carefully budget how you want to apply and present these ideas. Yeah, sure. Sean, what, what would you say would be the weirdest game you've you ever played? Could it be even, you know, role-playing games or board games or video games or not necessarily like the weirdest you ever played, but some some weird game you played recently that made you an impression and made you maybe think of new ways to explore this, you know, work. Mm. So relatively recently, um, and it's mostly when I can kind of find the right sort of people to, to play it with, is like asymmetric hunt games, which are like a type of traditional board game. Um, the specific one that I've got like most recent experience with is a game called Hare and Hounds, where there's a board which is kind of like lozenge shaped. So it's got 11 dots in a kind of like extended diamond thing. And one player has three hounds at one end. One player has a hare at the other. And the hare player wins if they can get entirely across to where the hound started. And the hounds will win if they can trap the hare so that it can't move. And there's quite a few games of that kind. There's, um, oh, I can never remember. I think it's... Hennefatafel might be the way of saying it. I can I can spell it with with luck and with access to a dictionary. Uh, mm -hmm. There's like the Viking game it's sometimes called, um, where you have a number of so you have an escaping king and then a number of some, like his defenders and then you've also got this attacking team which is much larger who are trying to trap and like overcome the king. And what I really like about them as a kind of game one is that they've almost entirely fallen out of like public awareness um in the fact that you could you could show most people a backgammon board and despite the fact that most people in the west don't play it at the moment a load of people would recognize what it is whereas i think a lot of these boards would just people would have almost little idea in unless unless they're as deep in the in the whole of classical board games as me um and i think because there's a lot of stuff that 
is both very old but also changes the way in which you're going to kind of approach thinking about things i think it's quite interesting um even with a way of like a lot of the thinking i do is about role-playing games where you in the traditional sense will have a games master you'll have a number of other players around the table and there is an imbalance both in terms of the amount of people doing a thing or the relative power of either of those sides even if it's overall still a collaborative thing rather than a competitive game and there is a massive history of people playing games that are directly imbalanced in this way and so i think there's something quite fun about looking in at that and uh yeah and i think that's that's a weirdness that i hope that i hope should come back i think i'd be much happier if if i saw a lot more people playing playing these tiny strange weird games that are like as classic as chess if not more so um but not quite as not quite as deep and learned and so much much easier for people to kind of pick up and play small chunks of i think that would that would definitely make me happy yeah yeah i mean board games are getting really big but i mean these mm-hmm. more classical games are still you know very restricted and we just bought like a, a set that you can play like chess uh and gammon and you know what is the other here called damas but i, I don't remember the, the other one um it's so really classic. quite often you get like checkers or drafts checkers, sets checkers. Like that. yeah checkers. yeah that's checkers here we call damas for some reason Mm. <laughs> do you do you have any other ro- hobbies you know besides role playing games I, i know you are a mind reader and a magician but that's kind of you know uh a work that you do too do you have any hobbies that are you know just for yourself and just for you to enjoy practicing them in some way so yeah there's there's a few probably like some of the the biggest ones are almost like quite natural leaning in a sense. Um, so I live, I live in a city. Um, I live in London. Right. And, uh, and so there's a lot of stuff that I quite often will enjoy spending time on that involves the non-urban world, or at least how things intersect. So uh, for like quite a long time, I've been um, like a fan of watching birds. Um, and that's something that I will, I won't necessarily go out of my way to do, but I'll spend quite a lot of my, downtime i suppose paying attention to those specific things around me to the point where um i will even go to specific places within the like certain parks and so on because i think it's more likely that i might see certain kinds of things at any one point um there's something quite pleasant about just like sitting and watching nature um and especially how it's how it's interacting with with other things as well i think it's quite fun um i'm a big fan of cooking I, uh, when I trained to teach, um, I had functionally no free time whatsoever, um, but I needed to eat. And so I put all of my hobby energy into, uh, making food. Um, and so it's the sort of thing where I'm now quite a fan of often some of my favorite meals to cook are when I haven't planned for things and just seeing what remains and what the opportunities are to kind of put things together and, doubly so if that's then also a meal that I can like share with other people too so there's the um the sense of like finding like processes that I've picked up that I've learned and uh and then like applying them to ingredients that look or smell or kind of feel sufficiently similar to something else um and then experimenting with them that way around 
and kind of like connected to that. Uh, there's like certain types of foods that I'm a particular fan of. Like um, we go by by gifts that invariably have been ended up being bought across the years. Uh, I'm quite a, quite a fan of of coffee. Um, quite a fan of beers. Um, certain spirits as well. And uh, not quite at the point where I'm entirely pretentious about them, but certainly close enough uh, in that I have opinions about certain types of foods and drinks. Um, mostly trying to find like some of the stranger or like more peculiar tastes in some cases. Uh, I remember not last year, not as in the new year that's just passed, but the previous one. Um, I was sat in the the pub local to me, a place called the Rusty Bucket, and. Uh, They've got quite a lot of like strange beers on. They had one beer that was um, 13%. So almost as strong as a, as a kind of like fairly strong wine. Um, and it was, uh, it had a, a, a satanic name of some sort and it was being sold for £6.66. Um, and the only other person mm. at the table who liked the taste of it was a professional chef. And everyone else was like, no, this is absolutely horrid. Um, and he and I were sat there going, it's like, well, I wouldn't drink lots and lots of it, but as a, as a thing to sample and to experience and to taste, it's like really very interesting. Um, so yeah, functionally, um, like my partner will will quite often comment that I'm like like if you look at a food menu, I'm likely to pick the thing that sounds the weirdest, almost horrible, and I'd probably enjoy it. Um, which yeah. is uh, which has caused confusion in some restaurants where I've tried to. Uh, there's, uh, I remember um, about a year ago, I was I was cat sitting for a friend. And uh, there was a Sichuan restaurant near her, so like Chinese food, but like of a specific province. And I saw that they did century eggs, which is where an egg is buried for a hundred days, and it essentially is a, a fermented process. And it's <laughs> it wasn't on the menu I was given um, because I was given an English language menu because I can't read Chinese. Um, and, uh, and when I tried to order it, because I knew that it was there, because it was on all of the, the pictures at the front, um, eventually when kind of went through this process and I was able to say, so I know I do want that. I do know what it is. I, I genuinely am excited to try it. Um, and it was fantastic. Absolutely um, incredible texture. Like the, the yolk was much the same as a load of other bits, but the, the white of the egg was almost like a kind of, uh, like a candy, like a sweet, the sort of like, the texture to it um but still being really savory and absolutely fantastic um wow so yeah wow. so i'd say probably my my biggest non-game hobbies are um eating weird foods um and finding finding my favorite things i'm pretty much the only person i know who likes the uh scandinavian style salted licorice um but uh <laughs> but it's it's a it's a happy life yeah oh i I don't know if I'm that adventurous as you, but I, I love experimenting with food. I remember, you know, going to Gen Con and they always have, you know, some weird new food or a hamburger. I remember, mm. I think it was 2018, they have a, like a waffles burger with peanut butter, bacon, oh, and, wow. you know, jam. Mm. And I ordered that with like a, a vanilla caramel bacon bourbon milkshake. Ooh. It was fantastic. Yeah. That does sound amazing because also I, there's I like... a lot of things that because as much as that sounds like it might be strange, like um, half of half of the cafes nearby had um, like Christmas sandwiches on their yeah. menu, and it's very common to have like brie and bacon, um, which again, like brie is very creamy; it's almost like certain types of peanut yeah. butter, and that's usually served with cranberry sauce, which is essentially a jam. 
And so it's, yeah, yeah it I think works. if people think it's, long it's enough, like, it's definitely a lot more you straightforward. Know, <laughs> yeah. Salty caramel, it's, you, mm. instead of salt, you can use bacon to caramel and it works like with mm. chocolate or, you know, I, I, every time I go, you know, travel, I always try to, you know, eat some good food that it's from there or like an interest restaurant, stuff that I wouldn't eat here. I remember, mm. you know, meeting a friend in, in New York one time, a Brazilian friend there. And I go, oh, let's go eat. Oh, there is like a Brazilian restaurant here. I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to eat in a Brazilian <laughs> restaurant in New York. That's That doesn't make any sense, you know. I could understand But, yeah. if if you lived there a long time and wanted something yeah, to oh, yeah, see how good an example yeah. it was. But no, it, it's it's yeah. so much more interesting to find things that are, Yeah, like I'm, I, I much prefer having memories of of distinct things that I couldn't have had unless I was in that place. Like, yeah, yeah, that's that's what I seek to. I always try. I, I ask friends that live there. Oh, do you have any you no know, favorite place to like go? Mm. I like to you know if I go to New York. Oh, I want to eat a really good bagel. Do you have you know mm. any place to recommend? Or like if I would go to, to London, I would probably ask. Oh, do you have any like good food places for me to go? Or like foreign food you know mm. like best noodles or you know soups or anything like this so mm. yeah would you actually have uh, two uh, no. best bagel shops in london on uh, on brick lane yeah. um one of them has slightly better bread one of them has slightly better salt beef so whenever someone's like oh which one do you want to go to it's like okay do you care more about the filling or the or the bagel and it's but yeah there they are <laughs> they're a long tradition they're yeah. invariably open until three four in the morning um so many nights of the week and it's uh yeah it's it's a very lovely spot you mentioned about teaching a lot like do do you still teach or now you mostly work with your art and as a mind reader and a magician yeah so actually so most of my most of my money comes through from from like writing things so either like copywriting or editing um a lot of that's not deeply exciting it's it's making sure that like job applications and um, like person specifications and internal emails and all, all manner of different things are kind of written, which is um, functional, but not necessarily exciting and enjoyable. Um, I stopped teaching around the time the, the pandemic kicked off, uh, mostly because I'd been doing it for 10 years and I realized I was spending more of my time making things like compliant for the school because it was a policy that we needed uh, like a certain color dot on every slide so that anyone walking in could see, oh, this is how much, how much students are allowed to talk during this task. And most of the students I was teaching were very small sets of students with like very significant learning needs. And I was finding I was spending less time supporting those needs than just matching a standard like policy thing for the school that I thought it was yeah. not the optimal thing with my time. So I miss teaching. Um, I don't currently miss schools, but almost as, as a result of that, there's a few other places where I almost like, like found additional things either to like, to like run teaching sessions um, or even in that I've increased the amount of times that I will then, even run games for people in public events because it kind of, it, it has that same like soft stage feel that teaching had. Um, and frankly, because I've spoken to thousands and thousands of students and thousands of kids at once, um, 
it's I, I imagine I might feel like a little bit of stage fright in front of like a stadium of people now, but functionally because I've spent so long just talking professionally, um, it's uh, it's very tricky for me to be weirded out by just too many people in a place. Um, so there's still certainly a load of the skills that come from that that kind of apply to other things. But uh, but yeah, no, I no, I no longer tread the classroom boards. Yeah. Well, Sean, now we're getting more into the. Uh, personal parts of the interview. I know we talked already talked about a little bit about ghosts and aliens and the supernatural things you might believe or not. Uh, but I'd like to ask you about you know uh, personal experiences you might have had uh, that helped you see the world in a different light. Uh, have you ever had any experiences uh, you know with out of body experiences or you know deep meditation or hypnosis or any kind of trance? that uh you know reconnected something about uh help you see the world in a different way so not directly uh there's a few times where because i've been quite like adjacent to a lot of hypnosis just through like performing stage magic and the like um more of the things i'd seen were kind of in the like theatrical vibe of things um to the point where i can't specifically think of if I've directly had like an altered experience that has then directly impacted my like psyche. But I do quite often think about the differences in environments and how certain situations, again, almost like kind of like boils back down to what, like what is audience and like who's, who's around at any given point. Um, and especially about how in very different situations in different places, partially depending on the people I'm surrounded with or the overall, like, intent of the location and the kind of like the wider vibe that's there about how I will then like be having different opinions on the same topic. So like if I'm remembering back to specific events that I'd had, how I'll be thinking differently if I'm explaining them to people compared to if I'm just sat on my own reflecting on them or drawing on them for experiences in like creating art. But it's um in terms of like direct altered experience, it's uh it's that's less of an area of my own personal experience yeah well do you have you ever had any kind of you know uh awareness uh altering experiences be it through meditation or no deep dreaming lucid dreaming or you know use of psychedelics or anything like this and if you had any any of these experiences how did you Anything that's stick, stuck to you, like uh, made you see the world in a different way? So not really. Um, although there are a few situations where, like quite often I will talk about how, like I feel lucky when I have nightmares. And that's partially because I have them so rarely. Um, and that it's even rarer that it tends to be the same thing that kind of like will crop up and will, will re result in things. But in a lot of situations, if I am thinking about specific individual nightmares that I've had, that will quite often then go on to either potentially help me like reflect differently on various concerns. Like there's um, obviously all manner of different like stress dreams can kind of like reflect on, oh, clearly I feel stressed about in this sphere. How is that going to actually like apply to things I'm thinking of? But also in a lot of cases, it's just the specific content of them will then go on to. Almost like be the 
the driving force behind the products that I might end up making. Um, and so in a few situations where I've then created a piece of work based off of the ideas that have come up through something in that case, and invariably looking back upon those pieces of work later down the line, being able to reflect, okay, I was probably working through certain things in this sort of sphere, or this is the, like the emotion that I was kind of like subconsciously pointing towards. But that's kind of about it. Do you do you have any notebooks that you keep notes of these dreams or ideas that you do? You mentioned you have a very good memory and you, you think about the stuff and then you develop. But do you have any repository where you keep all these ideas from that allows you to draw from them later? Or you just trust your, your good memory? So some of it is that I don't necessarily have a deeply good memory for dreams unless it's something that I've taken and then reapplied somewhere else. But if it is something that I've dreamt about or that I've found quite particularly interesting, I've got standard note keeping practices that I tend to use for like any manner of sort of like various pieces of research that I'm doing where I will just, I've got specific places that I will make notes in physical notebooks. And although I don't necessarily go back and look through them all at any given point, they're kind of, Almost like they feel more like yeah, the acts of notes in, in them, mm. and the acts of taking the notes helps you remember them. I think. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so it's the kind of yeah. the bit of the process in finding that stuff that had been put down and then sort of like pushed through. It then was like it enters the like the production line almost in a certain place only if it mm. gets to that point. Um, but I don't have a specific focused this is this is the list of all of the dreams and all of the things that I've kind of done. Um, to some extent, I think that's probably because of how I think about my own creativity in that once it's left its initial context, unless that was absolutely key about it, quite often I find being able to completely like separate that from what the context was means actually it's a lot more effective for what I'm trying to do in that I can... Yeah, it's just it. All of it's just like mulch and compost that I can then pull ideas from later, rather than saying, right, these ideas came from yeah. here, so I must use them in this place, and kind of trying to avoid. Oh no, yeah, like partitioning them. Yeah, no, it's it's about serendipity, right? Like you you mm -hmm. let them cross pollinate each other, and because sometimes you have all these isolated ideas, they are not that great, but if you put them together and let them, you know, talk to each other in some way then can grow and becoming and become something even greater if you just like the old saying like the sum of its parts it's it's greater mm. it's greater than the sum of its parts right yeah. yes no exactly yeah. Sean if you could you know choose any superpower to to have uh, what would you choose and what would be the first thing you would do with it so I think there's two main drives to this one of them is that Because I, because I have performed on stage as a magician for so long, I've kind of woven a few parts of that. Or if I could, this is how it would come about, and that it would play like it would kind of play out this way. Um, and a certain part of it, almost in that, like the ability to, for like to tell stories and to sort of like speak those stories into reality, um, almost in a way of being able to not necessarily impact how people think and believe with it, but to impact the 
like shift the way in which the world itself is. Um, almost the the kind of closest I can imagine. There's a there's a video game that I'm it's currently on my wish list and I'm going to pick up at some point that's functionally about taking photographs and then changing the perspectives of those photographs to kind of like shift where reality is. So you can take a photograph of a bridge and then apply that bridge in a different situation. So you can kind of, you could cross it. And I think in a similar situation to like that, where if I could say something which people have heard and those goes against the reality of what they've understood, but then because it's been said, it then becomes true. Um, so certain things like that. Um, the uh, the other flashy answer. What would be answer. the first thing? Yeah, what would um, be the first thing you do with that? Probably something very very simple and very silly, like make sure that um, <laughs> make sure that I've got a very nice pork pie downstairs. It's like ah yes, because yesterday I baked a pork pie and it was it was made of this. Um, oh yeah. And I think almost like the the weird mundane uses of it are kind of like more more weird and interesting. Um, yeah, no, I think that's kind of uh, that's kind of how I do it. Great, yeah, it's it's. I've always have this idea of a, like a magic item in a, in a role playing game that's just like a book, and as you write it, it becomes part of the world. Mm. So, but it also has a limited number of pages, so you can only alter the world on like a limited number of pages. Mm. Oh, I like that. It's kind of relates how 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 this is in some way. No, definitely. And by, by the way, if you if you could choose uh, any weird and fantastical or you know supernatural thing from any kind of media, from any 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 you know folklore or you know TV series, movies, comics, anything, and make it real in, in real in our world, what would you choose and why? And and, and it can be a faction, NPC, a monster, you know, a superpower, a character, anything. Mm. So this was always the uh, so the points where I've listened through to you asking this question to other people. This is always the one that I've that I've stumbled on, and I think part of it is, yeah, I would I would go back for a thing that I I think I wanted in a dream as a child once, um, which was that I would love to have a pet triceratops. Um, although as mm -hmm. a child, the reason that I never genuinely wished for it um, was because. I had a sort of an assumption of logic in that, well, if Triceratops is real, then it also means that all of these other predator dinosaurs are real and that would be too dangerous on it. So I won't, I won't wish for it. Um, but given that this is an entirely a thought experiment here, um, yeah, so I'd have, <laughs> I would have a pet Triceratops. Yeah. I wanted a Velociraptor as a pet, but I, mm. I think Triceratops would be maybe safer. But uh, maybe a lot bigger. Oh, definitely so, easier yeah. to feed, um, in that it's. Yeah. it's I've, I've got friends who um, who have got all manner of pets. Uh, someone in my um, old school essentials game um, was uh, was feeding her snake the other day, um, and it, it was it was a lot easier when we were then also trying to feed the uh, feed the hamster at the same time. Um, separate separate boxes, I should clarify. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's much easier to go. It's like, well, we're trying to convince you to eat his mouse versus here is some corn and some food that you can have so uh so yeah i think it would be much easier to have to have a herbivore <laughs> yeah and then and, and you know but the, the problem would be like cleaning the triceratops poop would be a lot bigger 
than than the Velociraptor one. So, yeah. Yes, that's true. <laughs> um, I currently live with quite a lot of cats, and so I'm uh, I'm fairly experienced at having to. At the moment, we have ten. Um, wow, yeah. And but that I is had because six a while ago, yeah. Yeah, six feels like the probably the the upper cap almost for what's sensible. Um, but they. But that's partially like the reason it's 10 is because many of them are kittens who, um, and so like when all of the kittens have gone, then like we'll let the mothers move on as well. And, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, but it's actually, that's, that's my top tip that I've um, ended up stealing for, for people, especially if they're, they're new to running games is, um, think about any pets that you know, or have ever known and just steal their personalities entirely for your characters. Um, wow. because then someone's like, Oh, how would this shopkeep react? I'm like, well, I know Charlie. And he would probably just not understand. So, yeah. And so you can just, you can link it to, and because it's a specific individual yeah. that you know, um, it's, uh, yeah, I think that's one of my, my favorite things is to just steal ideas yeah. from one place, apply them elsewhere and not tell anyone that's what you've done. And like, gosh, that was very deep. I'm like, yes, it's because you haven't got the joke and I refuse yeah. to tell you. Yeah. Well, I ha- I had this idea. I have this cat, like a, a black cat, that always wants to you know be on my shoulder. And I say that he's uh, he's the incarnation of a uh, you know a pirate parrot, <laughs> and he's a cat. Yep. So I I call him Carrot, but he's black, oh, and I call him brilliant. Carrot. But I always <laughs> you know joking that I, I'm gonna make my parrot game, and and there will be like a, a pirate captain that has a cat. In his shoulder, mm. that will be my cat for sure. I have to put him on on a game. Oh, that's perfect! I love uh, that lot. Sean, finally, you know our last question is: Do you remember the last time you felt, uh, you know, really happy and glad to be here, to be alive? And if you do, can you just share with us uh, what was this moment and how how did it made you feel? So yeah, um, I think quite a few recently actually, um, but probably one of the the most most pleasant recent ones um was was shortly after new year happened um and i was sat with my partner uh, eating um what was sometimes described as as british tapas uh, which is uh, i don't know if you've seen the like potato shapes um like get like potatoes made into like faces that and uh mm-hmm. and little nuggets um and i mean these weren't, weren't in the shape of dinosaurs these were in the shape of um like animals of the jungle so i had like a giraffe and an elephant sort of thing mm-hmm. um and uh and we were eating that and we were playing uh wingspan um the uh board game and uh and it just it just felt very very pleasant i liked it a great deal also yeah. i won that well, game with wingspan so i'm i'm doubly there's a, there's a double bit that of that helps. <laughs> that helps. But i think i enjoyed the process you know, before yeah. we even got there yeah, it's eating, so it's 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 nurturing you, and you're someone that you love, and and, and playing, which is as we said, very very important. So mm-hmm. it's fantastic, you know. I I have I have this moment too when I'm you know playing a board game with my family, and you know I get to play with my kids, and and you feel connected, you feel part of, you know, it's a great experience. Like 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 when we say. In game design, it's a magic circle that's happening in the game, mm. and it's kind of is like you, you see yourself, the people you love in this magic world that's all by yourself. So, I totally get it. So, yeah, great moment. Thanks for sharing it with us. By no, the way. thanks, thanks for asking. Yeah. 
So, Sean, uh, that, those were all the questions I had. I'm very grateful for you for being here, for the work that you do, and for sharing these secrets with us. And that, that one about stealing your pet personality for your NPC, <laughs> it's, it's great. I hope more people start doing that. And I'm certainly trying to pay more attention to it and, and you know, create more. So thank you very much. Do you have any you know, last message to give to the weirdos out there that are listening to us? Uh, I do my um, my my top my top bit of weird weird advice um, would be um, that it's it's never in the left hand. And that's my it's uh, my abject explanation <laughs> okay. for how almost all magic works, um, and that's that's what I will leave you with. Okay, that's that's quite mysterious, too. And <laughs> would, could you take us off, you know, saying like the catchphrase of the, the show, which is uh, keep it weird, everybody? Yes, I can. And uh, this is Sean F. Smith, and keep it weird, everybody. Thank you for listening to Weird Games and Weirder People. If you'd like to keep up with the show, please subscribe to be notified when we release new episodes. If you'd like to support us, please leave a review or head on to code-fi.com slash WGNWP. See you next time, and remember, weird is the new wonderful.